The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the incomplete story of six teenage boys who lived somewhat scattered around the greater Toronto area. In the early hours of March 17th in 1995, part of their group would be caught on CCTV footage causing trouble in the local marina in Pickering, Ontario. Unfortunately, that would be the very last time that anyone in their group was seen alive, or frankly, seen at all. A surprising amount of people haven't heard this case, and a good portion of the ones who have debate whether there's even a mystery here at all. Private investigator Bruce Ricketts certainly thinks so, so today we're going to try and make the pieces of the puzzle fit together. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. If you find yourself in the middle of Toronto's downtown core, you could hop into a car and arrive in Pickering, Ontario in approximately 33 minutes. I think that's a generous estimate, but that's what it says according to Google Maps. Not sure if they're considering how crazy Toronto traffic can be sometimes. But whether it takes you 33 minutes or three hours to get to Pickering, when you get there, you'll notice it's a small municipality of about 91,000 people that is mostly suburban, with an overwhelming majority of the employment coming from the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station. On its Wikipedia page, you'll see some interesting facts about the indigenous history of the land, the list of famous people who were born there, the famous TV shows such as Hannibal and Suits that were filmed there, you'll see stuff about the beautiful Frenchman's Bay and East Shore Marina, and how part of it is even formally considered a ghost town. What you won't find on their Wikipedia page of information is anything regarding six teenage boys who disappeared without a trace in 1995. Oftentimes, you won't find notable true crime cases linked to the Wikipedia pages of cities, but this case, even after 27 years, still borders on whether or not some people consider it to be quote-unquote true crime. There's a lot of debate surrounding whether or not what happened on March 17th in 1995 was a crime or not. Instead, the disappearance of 17-year-olds Jay Boyle, Michael Cummings, Danny Higgins, Robbie Rumbold, Jamie Lefebvre, and 18-year-old Chad Smith can only be classified as a true mystery. It's kind of hard to find information about these six teenagers online whether that's because this all happened back in the mid-90s, or whether it's because thorough record-keeping is not a common theme in this case. Regardless, a lot of the things you'll read about these boys online all relates to their disappearance. About two years ago, I watched a video on this case by true crime content creator, YouTuber, podcaster, Stephanie Harlow, and she said it best. When she creates content for true crime, she likes to include as much detail about the people involved as possible. Whether or not these six boys were victims of a crime, the victims in these cases are real people, and it does a great disservice to their stories and their lives to reduce them down to only being victims. I like to tell you about the people I talk about, 
but unfortunately though, until this case is solved, all six of these teenage boys simply have been reduced to being the main characters in a chillingly cold disappearance. And that's all I can really tell you about them. Their lives prior to going missing are also kind of a mystery. On the evening of March 17th, 1995, five of these boys, all except Danny Higgins, were getting ready to attend a St. Patrick's Day party. Some reports say it was a spring break party. Some reports say this party was hosted at the house of Chad Smith, who would eventually also go missing that evening. In any case, these boys would find themselves in the presence of approximately 50 other people and surrounded by both loads of marijuana and alcohol. Now, if you've ever been a drunken 17-year-old, especially if you live in a relatively small city, then you'll know it's not entirely uncommon practice to walk the streets in the middle of the night, maybe continuing to drink and smoke weed with your friends at whatever location is deemed the place to be for those kinds of activities. Whether that's the local park or the local high school, in any case, whatever it may be, around 12.40 a.m., that's exactly what this group of boys decided to do. They left the party, frankly, in search of a bit of trouble. And the place to be to hang out and drink with your friends and cause that kind of trouble was the local East Shore Marina off of Frenchman's Bay that backs onto Lake Ontario. Being one of the five Great Lakes situated across both Canada and the United States, Lake Ontario is quite large, but it's the smallest of the five. If you draw a straight line across Lake Ontario from Pickering, you would find yourself in Wilson, New York State, but the distance is just long enough that often you can't see the other side. So in the early morning hours, the group would pick up Danny Higgins along the way to the East Shore Marina, and before they left the approximate 50-person party, they said they'd be right back. Unfortunately, this would turn out not to be true, as the boys never came back. Two of their girlfriends, including Monique Vivala, who was dating Jay Boyle, reported the group as missing to police around 3.30 a.m. that same morning after they didn't return back to the party or back to their homes. According to both of them, as well as Jay's sister, Amanda Boyle, the Durham Regional Police didn't initially think too much of their disappearance. This is often how it goes with young teenagers who go missing. Police don't seem to feel a sense of urgency to go find them, especially when they're known to police as either a young troublemaker or a frequent runaway. Jay Boyle, at the very least, was known to police as a young troublemaker, and I'm sure him facing assault charges at this time in 1995, as well as having already done time for similar charges, didn't prompt the police to drop everything and start searching for him out of genuine concern. However, I don't think any prior involvement with law enforcement is an excuse to wait the full 36 hours that they did before searching for the six missing teenagers, but we'll get there. The initial officer who answered the phone calls of the concerned girlfriends told them to get in contact with the boys' mothers, and if they didn't return home at a time that the mothers felt appropriate, then they can go ahead and file a missing persons report. This does bother me, and it's a practice often seen, I don't think too much anymore, but in missing persons cases when the police don't feel a sense of urgency to go search for someone. They'll often tell the families to wait, or make up arbitrary rules about how a waiting period is customary, or even a part of their policy, but it's not. 
You can file a missing persons report right away. You don't need to wait any amount of time, especially if you know this person and you have reason to believe that something is wrong. In this officer's log report of the call, he states that he didn't sense the girls on the phone to be entirely forthcoming and truthful about their whereabouts or the events of that evening. Given such, he felt that he couldn't do anything for them. However, this report was written well after the fact. The original officer didn't keep an original log. It was actually a senior officer who asked him to do so a few days later. And this won't be the last time we run into problematic record keeping on behalf of the Durham Regional Police in this case. Regardless of how dismissive the original officer was of the young girls who called concerned about their missing boyfriends, when the group of six didn't return back home the next day on March 18th, it seemed like then people were taking things a little bit more seriously. It became even more urgent when police started getting phone calls from people who had their boats docked at the East Shore Marina in Frenchman's Bay. People were reporting that their boats had been stolen. There were two alleged vessels that were missing, and when police arrived at the marina to investigate, what they found was that a replica of the styrofoam core, infamously unsinkable 14-foot Boston Whaler, as well as a giant water tricycle on buoyant wheels with pedals, had been stolen. As they were digging around and trying to survey the area and find what evidence they could, police stumbled across some CCTV footage of the previous evening. What they saw on that footage of the East Shore Marina on the night of March 17th into the early morning hours of the 18th was three teenage boys, later deemed to be Jamie Lefebvre, Robbie Rumbold, and Michael Cummins, breaking into the marina and taking beers out of boats that were docked. Now, although police had initially connected the two missing boats to the footage of these teenage boys causing trouble in the marina, there is no existing video evidence to suggest that the boys had stolen the two missing boats. But again, they began connecting some of the dots and then realized that they had more questions to answer. They realized that if six teenagers were missing and so were two boats, and three of these teenagers were identified at the marina, then something must have actually happened here, and there was a high likelihood that all six boys were somewhere stranded on Lake Ontario. 36 hours after the initial phone call to police regarding concern over the boys' welfare, around 2 p.m. on March 19, 1995, the search for all six of them was finally underway. Durham Regional Police must have realized that they had taken quite a while to get out there searching, given the boys had already been missing for 36 hours. As well, a search like this is probably a little bit more than the Durham Regional Police on their own could handle. I can only assume they realized they didn't have sufficient resources to scour Lake Ontario as intended. So, they were joined by the Toronto Police Marina Unit, the Coast Guard, armed with a C-130 aircraft and helicopter for air surveillance from the Canadian forces in Trenton, as well as some civilian boats who wanted to help out out of the goodness of their hearts. Unfortunately, the search would not last that long and it would be called off on March 20th, only the next day, as the efforts seemed futile. There was no sign, apparently, of any six of the Lost Boys of Pickering, or the two boats that were missing. As expected, six teenage boys who were likely drunk and high off of marijuana, all messing around in a marina with a bunch of boats, police quickly jumped to the conclusion that the two boats again were stolen by them. 
Some people have a problem with this theory or assumption right away, as again, the CCTV footage shows the group only really being interested in the booze on the docked boats, and there's no concrete evidence that they got into the stolen vessels, let alone stole them at all. Also, again, in the CCTV footage, there's only three boys visible. Where are Danny Higgins, Chad Smith, and Jay Boyle? Moreover, if they did steal the vessels, where are they now? They're not tiny little boats. And why, by the time that police had called off the search, hadn't something belonging to one of them or one of the vessels washed up somewhere? And why, 27 years later, has nobody seen a single trace of them or the boats since? It turns out, upon some further investigating, that someone did see something, or I guess I should say hear something. Some of the homeowners, or I assume cottage owners, along the side of the marina reported to the Durham Regional Police that they heard a boat on the lake between 2 and 3 a.m. on March 18th. Only about a half an hour later is when the boys were reported missing by two of their concerned girlfriends. This only further substantiated the police's theory, and consequently allowed them to neglect investigating any further in favor of convoluting this theory into explaining very unexplainable variables throughout the years. Durham Regional, along with other police agencies which we'll get to, have maintained that their main theory revolves around all six boys stealing both missing vessels, the replica Boston Whaler and the giant water tricycle. Then, on the Durham Regional website, they explicitly state that they believe the vessels both capsized. This would have sent all six boys into hypothermia and subsequent shock within minutes of them falling into Lake Ontario. Given the extremely low average water temperature of Lake Ontario in March being about 0.4 degrees Celsius or 32.7 degrees Fahrenheit, each of the six boys, again, would have died within minutes. However, the speculated method on how the vessels simply capsized seems to differ, depending on who you ask. As of 2005, the again official police theory from Durham Regional, according to Detective Mark Sheridan, was that the boys were essentially a drunken disaster and managed to crash into something unexpectedly. This crash would have damaged the boats so badly that it would begin to sink, and again, all six boys would have gotten hypothermia and died. However, although, sure, it seems intuitive on the surface, I have a lot of issues with this theory. It is true that hypothermia can induce shock and death very quickly, especially in water at that temperature. But all six boys dying of hypothermia after their vessels began to sink would require a large enough accident occurring that somehow both the boat and the water tricycle were both so badly damaged that they both began to sink. And evidently, it wouldn't take very long before both vessels would have had to reach the bottom of Lake Ontario because not a single shred of plastic from them has ever been found from this incident since 1995. This theory becomes a little bit more unbelievable when you factor in the make of both the vessels. The original Boston Whaler is a 14-foot boat with a styrofoam core, and this is a feature that has made the boat renowned for being quote-unquote unsinkable. There are even videos on YouTube of people sawing Boston Whalers in half and having it continue to float in water. It's said that it will float when it gets holes in it. It's said that it will float even when it starts to fill with water. 
And although the boat that the boys had allegedly stolen was a replica, it was made with that same interior styrofoam core, as again, it's a replica. Additionally, the water tricycle is probably the craziest water vessel I've ever seen. It's literally a glorified tricycle on giant floating wheels with pedals, and unless a giant squid or 20-foot wave came and knocked it over, that thing doesn't look like it's going down very easily. And then when you revisit the idea that something would have had to happen to sink not only one but both of these vessels that are both renownedly durable for all six boys to die, the Durham police theory doesn't seem to stand very well on its own. Another theory that makes a little bit more sense is that something must have happened to one of the boats, whether it was the Boston Whaler replica or the water tricycle. And the group of six boys were separated into two groups, half and half, split between each vessel. When one of the apparently damaged vessels began to go down, it might have prompted the other boys on the other vessel to jump in for a rescue or just to mess around in the water not realizing that the clock would be ticking instantly towards their deaths. Or maybe one of the boys was acting belligerent as they were intoxicated and he fell in. They were drunk from a party after all, and maybe the other five jumped in to save him. Again, they might not have realized exactly how deadly those frigid waters were. And these are the theories that give rise to the debate about whether or not the case of the Lost Boys of Pickering is even a mystery. Could it be that these teenage boys were just too drunk to be boating on the frigid waters of Lake Ontario at almost 1 in the morning in March? Possibly. But if either of these theories are true, where are the vessels? Again, not a single piece of material or fabric or plastic has ever been found from either the replica whaler or the water tricycle. And again, that water tricycle is quite large. You can't miss it, especially if you're flying planes over Lake Ontario only 36 hours after the boys go missing. Now, if you look up this case on your own, you'll find articles that discuss how my previous statement about how nothing from these vessels or the boys has ever been found may not be entirely true. There was a gas can that washed up in Wilson, New York State. This gas can was thought to belong to the 14-foot replica Boston Whaler, the same one that was allegedly or thought to have been stolen by the six missing boys. However, like I mentioned briefly earlier, if you draw a straight line from Pickering, Ontario across Lake Ontario into New York State, you'd end up in Wilson. Although the waters were reportedly calm on the night of the boys' disappearance, Lake Ontario does have winds and currents that theoretically would have put the gas can 120 miles or 193 kilometers east in Rochester, New York, if it did come from the East Shore Marina in the Frenchman's Bay off of that stolen Boston Whaler replica. As well, that boat at the time it went missing, according to the owner, didn't have enough gas to travel that same distance west towards the city of Toronto for the gas can to follow the same currents to Wilson where it arrived. But okay, it ended up there anyways. Except, the way they matched the gas can to the missing boat was through a label and some indentations that traced its production location and year. It wasn't actually an entirely unique identifier linking it to the missing boat. 
This brings up some questions in my mind if this gas can really does belong to the missing boat. As well, the gas can was reportedly attached in a way to the whaler replica that required manual or extremely forceful accidental detachment. So, was it the same gas can that belonged to the missing replica Boston whaler? Did it come off of the boat after it was stolen by the missing teenagers? How did that happen? Or is the gas can just similar? We really don't know. There's also been no evidence of any of the six boys who went missing either, but like that gas can, there is some contradictory evidence to this statement as well. However, again, once you look further into it, I don't know if it really stands on its own. In 1998, there was a pair of red pants containing human remains found in the Niagara region. They contained, in addition to the human remains, partial white socks and a wallet with no contents, just the same as Jay Boyle had been wearing that night he went missing. In fact, the last photo of Jay Boyle ever taken was on the night of his disappearance, and he's wearing red pants, Levi Strauss to be exact, that matched the description of these pants found in the Niagara region almost perfectly. The pants and remains were found after two workers at the hydroelectric generating station next to the Niagara River found them while cleaning the grates in the forebay, something that hadn't been done in almost seven years. The pants were found again across Lake Ontario in a region that doesn't make a whole lot of sense given wind and water currents. However, that's not why they were ruled out as being not related to the case of the Lost Boys of Pickering by the office of the chief coroner. Ottawa-based private investigator Bruce Ricketts has refused to give up on this case. He has been working tirelessly to get answers and has uncovered some disturbing discrepancies in the police's documentation. Let's start with the pants. While trying to allocate documentation to understand the basics and more intricate details of this case, Ricketts was given the runaround. He has been continuously denied access to case files and documents by Durham Regional Police, despite filing viable Freedom of Information Act requests, which require total transparency of all law enforcement documentation of the public interest. He was initially told when he filed four documents with the Durham Regional Police that this case was actually a matter for the province and that he needed to file the request through the Ontario Provincial Police but was then told the opposite by the Ontario Provincial Police and that he needed to file with Durham Regional. Then, when these pants were found in the Niagara region, the Niagara Police stonewalled him in the same way, further denying his Freedom of Information Act requests on simple technicalities. Ricketts actually met with true crime YouTuber Stephanie Harlow back in 2020 to discuss these issues with her in detail. I suggest you watch her video on this case. I'll link it on my website at crimopediapod.ca. She relays to her audience that Ricketts believes the police were essentially a disaster from day one in this case, and that they may have been giving him the runaround to avoid being transparent with their documents. Ricketts, along with many others, believes this may be why the Lost Boys of Pickering case went entirely cold. When Ricketts was finally granted access to case documents from the Niagara Regional Police regarding these red Levi Strauss pants containing human remains found at the hydroelectric facility, they were heavily redacted. According to one of the redacted police reports, the pants are described as, quote, 
Red denim jeans from Levi Strauss, 32 waist, 31 inseam. However, according to a forensic anthropologist who later looked at these pants, their report says that they were not Levi Strauss denim. They weren't really red either, they were more orange, only red when wet, and they were coated with a waterproof, fire-retardant material that was not found on any clothing manufactured by Levi Strauss. According to the description in the police report, these pants could have very well belonged to missing Jay Boyle of the Lost Boys of Pickering. According to the anthropologist, they were clearly not his. This glaring discrepancy in documentation has caused a lot of issues for Bruce Ricketts with trying to uncover whether or not these pants, more importantly the human remains within them, belong to Jay Boyle. If anything, It'll give some answers as to what happened to all six boys, but there are more questions than answers. Do they belong to Jay Boyle? Are the ones looked at by Niagara police even the same ones looked at by the anthropologist? Given the descriptions, it doesn't seem like it. If not, where did the original pair go? Both of these reports cannot be correct at the same time, so who is telling the truth? Bruce Ricketts says that this disaster with the red pants potentially being the only remnants of six entire lives that disappeared seemingly out of thin air is enough reason for him to believe that the pants were actually misplaced at some point. Another reason he thinks this is because initially, when the red pants were found at the Niagara Hydroelectric Facility, the family of Jay Boyle was told that Although it seemed like a promising lead, there was not enough biological material in the remains to test for DNA. This held true across any detective who they asked about it, and the Boyles were simply told that there was no way to find out if the pants or the remains belonged to their missing loved one. However, then seemingly out of nowhere, some of the family members of Jay Boyle, and certainly not Bruce Ricketts, were invited for a meeting with the coroner in 2014, who allegedly stated that the real reason there was no testing done was because the Niagara police misplaced the original evidence box. And then, somehow, despite initially there not being quote-unquote enough biological evidence, a DNA test was done after Jay Boyle's mother was asked to hand over a DNA sample of his, and she managed to produce Jay Boyle's original umbilical cord. But then, despite again the remains being insufficient for testing in whatever capacity, after that test was done, they were deemed not to match Jay Boyle, despite belonging to a tall, young, white male, wearing apparently Jay's exact last outfit, at least according to some of the documentation. This raises again a whole onslaught of questions, and the questions Ricketts and everyone else still had beforehand remain. Even now, Ricketts is not allowed to see the pants and never has been, so he can't verify any of this information for himself. His requests to examine them personally are denied as, quote, it's not of public interest, which is again necessary to file a Freedom of Information Act request. The denials seem unfounded. It's hard to understand why Ricketts wouldn't be allowed access to documents or evidence, especially if the police clearly have nowhere to turn after 27 years. And it's hard not to ask yourself what police services might be hiding. It's hard not to 
kind of just assume that they're embarrassed about their botched investigation that kept snowballing into a worse and worse job. According to Ricketts, amidst all of the heavily redacted documentation he received after years of trying, he was able to find a file about a company who was contracted out by the search and rescue operation in Frenchman's Bay, opening up into Lake Ontario when the boys originally went missing. This company uses sonar to search for objects at a depth underwater, mostly shipwrecks, but their contract was cancelled before they even got a chance to attempt to look for any sign of the boys or the apparently stolen and sunken vessels, and nobody knows why. There's also evidence in those files that during the initial searches involving aircrafts, one of the search logs states that a boat was spotted from the air during the March 19th search, just under the water in Lake Ontario. This boat possibly fit the dimensions of the allegedly stolen replica Boston Whaler. However, despite this sighting, it was never followed up on, and a large portion of the original documentation from that search have been destroyed. In these documents as well contain old logs of statements taken by potential witnesses who have claimed to have seen one or a few of the boys around the Greater Toronto Area and beyond since their disappearance. Although none of these sightings were ever substantiated, whether that be because the sightings were unfounded or because the police had prematurely given up, we'll never know. One person said they saw Chad Smith in his home on the day he went missing. Another said they saw Jamie in a Burger King in Clarence, New York a few days later. If any of the boys' families were already reluctant to buy into theories about them crashing two reportedly unsinkable water vessels and all dying without leaving a single shred of plastic or a fingernail behind, then they were certainly heavily reluctant to believe that the boys would just be out living their lives, having abandoned their families spontaneously after a night of drinking. This is especially true for Jay's family. Jay's sister, Amanda Boyle, has a really hard time buying this theory and has been, frankly, outspoken about it. Jay Boyle, at the time of his disappearance, had an infant daughter with his girlfriend, Monique. His daughter is now a young woman in her 20s, and his sister, Amanda, doesn't believe in a million years that he would up and leave his girlfriend and their child alone in the world on purpose. But that doesn't mean it's not worth investigating. There's no evidence to suggest that police ever looked into any of the claims made by witnesses about seeing these boys around the greater Toronto area and even in New York after their disappearance. So is there a mystery here, or does it seem relatively intuitive that bad things may happen when you go out on a big cold lake in the middle of the night on a reportedly stolen boat after a night of drinking and smoking weed? Yeah, it does seem like a bad idea, but also we don't even know that they stole any boats. Although it seems reasonable to assume, or even probable, we just don't know. We can't even verify details into the case as early as the night they went missing, let alone verify what has happened to them or their remains over the last 27 years. Did the boys steal the missing replica Boston Whaler and the water tricycle? Did the gas can found in Wilson belong to the replica Boston Whaler? If so, why did it wash up on shore directly in a straight line across Lake Ontario from Pickering instead of following wind and water patterns? 
If the vessels did sink and it was impossible to find them, why at the very least didn't the gases from their decomposing bodies bloat them to the top of the water body? Out of six boys, why didn't one of them have a finger or a toe or something erode away and wash up on shore? If that did happen and those original pants found did belong to Jay Boyle with the human remains inside of them, what happened to make the DNA match go so wrong? Why did they say they couldn't do it and then suddenly did do it? Did the police lose the original pants? Is it possible that they were the only concrete evidence of the whereabouts of their remains and now, at the very least, they're questionable and contaminated? Even if the bodies are long gone, where are the boats? The water tricycle wouldn't just sink like a typical vessel filling with water. So where is it? Where are its remnants? It's not like we're talking about the vast Atlantic Ocean here. This happened in the smallest of the Great Lakes. Did the police waiting 36 hours to start searching really make that much of an impact? If they started sooner, could they have possibly spotted something? Did they spot something? That sighting in the aircraft of the boat just underwater? Why didn't they follow up on it? If the vessels were out there, why didn't anyone else see them? Why have the police not even tried to resolve any of these questions? Unfortunately, now Bruce Ricketts seems to be the only investigator on this case. Most, if not all, of the original investigators have retired or are deceased. However, because Ricketts is independent, many of his questions to Durham Regional and Niagara Regional Police go unanswered. Even today, the original copy of the CCTV footage where it shows three of the boys stealing beer out of some of the boats apparently doesn't exist anymore in police records. And this is despite back in 1995, the families of the Lost Boys being invited to the police station to come and view it personally. I do have a short version of the CCTV footage linked on my website at crimopediapod.ca, but it's not quite as lengthy as what the families had seen back in 95. And I'm sure with today's technology, the original video would be extremely helpful. All of these instances of police not knowing where things went wrong or where things went at all or having straight answers begs the question, what is even happening to evidence at Durham Police? Is there even integrity in the quality of their investigations? Now, all Bruce Ricketts can do is continue sifting through documents and hope to bring light to this case so that another investigator can take it on one day. In the meantime, he's encouraged all family members of the Lost Boys to register with the National DNA Data Bank, which would match their DNA against all human remains found in the St. Lawrence River or in Lake Ontario, both two significant water bodies in the area. The network of waterways that knit themselves through southwestern Ontario into the greater Toronto area unfortunately house a lot of deceased individuals that are uncovered every year. It would be a huge disservice to Jay Boyle, Michael Cummins, Danny Higgins, Chad Smith, Robbie Rumbold, Jamie Lefebvre, and their families not to test each one that is found. There is one last theory that I've yet to mention. And to me, honestly, I don't think it's off the table. In a case like this, where there are more glaring questions than concrete answers about anything, I don't think any theory is off the table. According to Bruce Ricketts, Lake Ontario between Pickering, sort of the greater Toronto area as a whole, and New York State 
used to be quite the hotspot for drug smuggling across the Canadian-American border. Although there is evidence that it likely still happens, it apparently used to be much worse back in those days, significantly much more unregulated. It makes some people wonder that if in the middle of the night the boys did steal those boats and were out somewhere on Lake Ontario, and they ran into someone sinister who was not expecting to find company, could they have run into trouble? Could a drug operation have suddenly had to detour and handle six accidental witnesses and two water vessels in one night? Could the Lost Boys of Pickering be casualties of international drug smugglers? It might explain why not a single piece of verifiable evidence has washed up on shore, not from the boats or from the people within them. However, some of the family do still hold on to hope that their boys are still alive. Like I said, nothing is off the table. Sharon Cummins, the mother of Michael Cummins from Oshawa, who was 17 when he disappeared with the rest of his friends, says that him being alive to this day is no more implausible than a shallow lake swallowing six young men without surrendering a body, a boat, clothes, shoes, not even a hat. And I have to agree. Like I said, although Amanda Boyle and the rest of Jay Boyle's family refuse to believe he's just out there living life, sometimes you just have to hold on to hope, and nothing is off the table. This case is still technically open, and there is a tip line email to send off any tips you might have, and if you do know something, or maybe someone in your family said something once that could ring a bell with this case, please don't hesitate to send that information to lostboys.tipline at gmail.com. Again, if you know something, because someone should know something, that's lostboys.tipline at gmail.com. Again, I wish I could give you guys a better description of each of the boys and what they were wearing last when they went missing, but if you dig into this case yourself, you'll see what I mean it's almost impossible to find any information about them, and that has rung true throughout the entire investigation. It's frankly a tragedy, because who knows if over the years people have found their hats or their shoes, they would have never known that what they found was a critical piece of evidence in an open investigation into a cold case, 27 years old. Today, in 2022, the Lost Boys of Pickering are still lost, that is all the information I have to give you. And again, many people debate on whether this is a mystery or not, so I'm anxious to hear your thoughts. I certainly think something nefarious has happened here. I'm just not entirely sure what. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I know this one is a bit on the shorter side, but I was dying to cover this case as it's close to home and again, largely unheard of. I'm sure if more people knew about it, there could be movement on this case, but it's up to us to keep their story alive. If you want to take a look at some of the photos in this case and some of the links that I got my information from, you can find that on my website at crimopediapod.ca, or you can take a look at my Instagram at crimopediapod. I'm still also taking case suggestions. You can find that on my website on the homepage. There's a forum there for you to fill out, and I will talk about whatever you want to hear. Thanks again, everyone. Stay safe, and I will see you here next time. <music> <music>